Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the nonprofit news feed, well, we are talking about the train derailment and the environmental fallout in East Palestine. But first, Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. We had our first major snowstorm in New York City this morning. A whopping two inches fell on Central Park, and it has since all melted. But this is truly the first snow we've got. And uh, global warming is real. and. I'm kind of not about it. I want our snow back. Well, I was, speaking of snow, able to uh, build a, an entire igloo, roughly 60 feet around and 10 or so feet high. And it was, um, it was quite something. And if you are an Instagram follower of Whole Whale, you too can see uh, the, the net effect of my creation. But on to the news. You want to walk us through this first story? Sure. We'll, we'll come back to, to your... Uh... <laughs> to Elsa over there. But uh, for now, uh, yes, we need to talk about the train derailment and the environmental fallout in East Palestine that has led to political and illegal frenzy. So of course, this train derailment happened a couple of weeks ago now in Ohio, and it has generated lots of criticism and lawsuits and investigations and advocate demands and even conspiracy theories as just about everyone uh, is pointing fingers at somebody else for what went wrong and has created something of a political circus here. But it continues to remain in the political and the national conversation as the potential environmental damages from the derailment come to light. So the derailment has prompted criticism of both the Biden and former Trump administrations. It's ensnarled politicians like Governor uh, DeWine and Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg and has led to numerous lawsuits, uh, both praise and criticism of the EPA and just many other kind of uh, criticisms. And yeah, it's it's kind of a mess. But one story that we found we were looking for the nonprofit angle for this one was that a nonprofit law firm called We the Patriots USA is a nonprofit public interest law firm, quote, will host a press conference in Akron to discuss litigation against the Environmental Protection Agency, according to local reporting from WKYC. So I think the takeaway here is that Americans are increasingly sensitive to environmental disasters. Um, everyone's seen Aaron Brockovich a bunch of times now. We've had time to internalize the not so great history with this kind of stuff. And this incident could refocus public scrutiny on environmental regulation and potentially spur increasing attention toward nonprofit environmental advocacy and intervention. I would say a lot of the attention around this is, I mean, it's obviously bad for the people um, directly impacted. There is a huge political component of this, and you can talk about other environmental disasters and, you know, uh, it's kind of an interesting comparison between uh, kind of the media narratives around this one versus 
other environmental concerns in recent years. But George, what's your takeaway on this one? I think you're right that there is increased scrutiny up front when we hear that there was an environmental disaster and then reports of like, what does this mean to water quality and the safety of the people in that area? You know, you can look just into recent memory of, you know, Flint, Michigan, where there were, you know, questionable ratings in the water and then terrible impacts it had on that community. So it seems like up front, media, politicians, and nonprofits are taking this a lot more seriously rather than just sort of waving it off. I'm sure this is, you know, going to sort itself out. And, you know, it does open that door for certainly legal action. And I'm not sure the the history of this particular uh, nonprofit or legal entity, but, you know, be it on the left or right, my hope is that the net effect is a a better quality of life and increased protection for both the people that have suffered this tragedy, but also in general, our uh, rail system and policies clearly uh, need uh, need an overhaul and need need uh, attention paid because this is um, you know there this is a community there are children and adults families that that live in this this area and they're being told things are safe when maybe they uh, maybe they aren't yeah George I think that that's a, a great assessment this is a story of course we will continue to follow on the podcast and keep an eye on but. I want to move into our next story in the summary, and this one comes from USA Today. And the title of this story is Many Ukrainian Refugees in the United States are Sponsored by Ordinary Americans. And it highlights the work of the Welcome.us organization, which uh, was created to help Afghan refugees who were being evacuated from Afghanistan that has also since pivoted to help Ukrainian refugees uh, arriving here in the United States. So uh, over 200,000 Ukrainian refugees have come in through the program, or I'm sorry, 113,000 Ukrainians, 200,000 volunteers have signed up to host this over 100,000 Ukrainian refugees in the country, which is more than four times as many people who entered the country in 2022 through the traditional refugee admission system, right? So uh, we hear stories about how complicated it is to navigate the labyrinthine asylum and refugee admission process in the United States. People from Ukraine and uh, other countries that have special legal status like uh, Cuba and Haiti actually can get fast-tracked through this system via the Welcome.us nonprofit, which does list several presidents uh, as honorary board members. Um, So, George, I think the takeaway here is that you have hundreds of thousands of Americans who have signed up to welcome over 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. This, of course, is something we wanted to highlight as we mark the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which took place Uh, In February of 2022, the conflict is still ongoing. The humanitarian need is still dire. And it's a dangerous conflict, but it's kind of really cool to see what people operating at their best can do. This organization was able to welcome people very swiftly, uh, connect with volunteers very quickly, 
And this program gives me a lot of hope. But at the same time, uh, it's really almost disheartening to see that we have the capacity to help all of these people, yet refugees and asylum seekers who arrive at the border, like unaccompanied children, face vastly different experiences. So, George, what's your takeaway on this one? You know, we're one year into this conflict with no real end in sight. And I, I think this is something that is, you know, we're going to continue to see. I'm really impressed, actually, with the, the Welcome.us, what they call Welcome Connect. And this Welcome Connect actually is this online portal where they're dynamically matching vetted Americans with uh, Ukrainians seeking asylum. Currently, they try to limit, you know, a relatively equal ratio between, they say, Ukrainians and potential sponsors. Um, and actively on Welcome Connect, there are more than 2,200 active conversations between potential matches. And it's, you know, an, an impressive way of doing this at, at scale. I'm very impressed by Welcome.us, but also concerning because clearly they're throttling the amount of people looking for asylum. And so, you know, if you, uh, if you know someone or want, want to support, that's probably where I'd start. Yeah, George, I think that's a great point. Actually, interestingly enough, in that article, I talked about the stat that many of those volunteers actually had some kind of familial connection to the Ukrainian diaspora. So potentially many of those folks' families are Ukrainian or have connection to Ukraine or Eastern Europe. Which is, which is pretty interesting. And I think just goes to underscore <laughs> America is a country of immigrants. And no matter what part of the world you're talking about, there is a dedicated and a vibrant community of those folks on the state side. And of course, uh, the volunteers are much more broad than that. But uh, I personally have been able to connect with folks in the Ukrainian diaspora, gone to protests and events and they are a well-organized bunch, let me tell you. So this is really, really cool to see and really inspiring. All right, shall I take us to our next story? Okay, this one comes from FedScoop. Uh, that's a fun one. And this uh, title of this story is The IRS is working with the nonprofit New America to deliver online direct tax filing system study. Uh, so not the system itself, the study of the system, but hey, you know what? I'll take it. Uh, so the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, the people who take our taxes from us, uh, is working with technology public policy nonprofit New America to study the feasibility of establishing a digital IRS operated direct file tax return system. I think on the podcast, we are suckers for some good nonprofit tech public sector accessibility projects. Um, this is right up. This is right up your alley, George. So I'll pass it off to you. I think I almost understand the implications of this, but this is part of the Inflation Reduction Act that they were given funds to develop this tool, which would allow uh, citizens to use these e-filing tools for more complex tax returns. Uh, I think there's some predatory activity out there, certainly in the, quote, free filing now, yet it always costs you more when, in fact, there should be a direct way for uh, Americans to file their taxes. And this, you know, hits low-income communities uh, as much when you've got these barriers in the way. Uh, for nonprofits, um, 
you know, I think it will give them an easier way also to navigate filing their taxes so they can, you know, clearly focus on their core mission. Uh, but, you know, that is a, a, a second level step that I wait to see. But, you know, not for profit is a IRS gain. And if they're improving this filing, hopefully as uh, a step forward and saves time, maybe even uh, money for organizations. Absolutely. George, do you want this time to pitch your uh, your big tax policy for nonprofit idea? I feel like every year I go I, I go through this. Uh, yeah, the payroll, my payroll argument. I, I wasn't primed for this, but my my big thing is the fact that nonprofits, right, are paying payroll tax. I know some of that goes to Social Security and, and state costs as well, but the truth is that the same payroll tax applied to Amazon worker executives, Apple executives uh, are the same exact rates uh, applied to a, a nonprofit after school program worker or somebody in a animal shelter with with employees. It slows the rate of growth for small organizations. My pitch is that for organizations operating under X, say under 50 people or a certain millions of dollars or one million of dollars, like you don't have to pay certain types of payroll tax for your employees, uh, thus allowing you to potentially raise their uh, effective pay rates by 7 to 14%, depending on where you draw the line. But there you go. <laughs> there's, there's, the, there's the tax hill I'll, I'll, I'll plant, my, plant my flag on. I love it. I'll, I'll plant a flag there. I'll plant a flag there too. I'm with you. I'll sign that, that bill. Uh, maybe we can, maybe we can find who's our, who's our Congress people. Maybe we can get someone to, uh, sponsor, sponsor a bill or two. You yeah, I'll put it together project. with Politweets. We've got that widget. I'll, I'll just design that out. I wrote the article already last year and I'll, I'll resurface it and put it so we can, uh, tweet people out about some esoteric bureaucratic solutions to tax policy that would help small nonprofits grow and increase, by the way, our labor force, uh, a 10th of which work for not-for-profits. Nothing screams uh, viral attention and the ever-decreasing attention span of our uh, attention economy like uh, esoteric tax rule. Uh, but George, I think... I think Nick, I know you're joking. You've got it figured out. I'm serious here. This thing is going to go viral. Let's do it. I'll make it happen. Make it happen. All right. I'll take us into our next story. And George, I'm not even going to re-up this because I'm not going to try to explain it because it's it's a little too complicated for me. But this comes from TechCrunch and has to do with Sam Altman and OpenAI and controversy around the transition from OpenAI's, quote, nonprofit to for-profit model. George, what's your take? This is something that I'm going to be digging into uh, a lot. I'm, I'm very happy to see this because at its core, the chat GBT and Sam Altman, you're going to hear that name quite a bit. This is the the new darling of Silicon Valley. Previously, very impressive for like Y Combinary, what his achievements. He built this uh, chat GPT, but more importantly, open, open AI, which had both a nonprofit uh, structure to it. 501c3 structure to it. And I think there were for-profit LLC entities that may have been associated early on, but notable figures like Elon Musk and even organizations like, you've heard of them, Microsoft, uh, invested slash donated. And this is where you, know, you have to do a di bit more digging. 
donated into this organization whose goal was the positive, I'm paraphrasing, positive use of AI for society. They didn't want, you know, basically Terminator 2. They're like, don't do Terminator 2. Okay, here is money to build this. But then they built it and now are, in effect, rolling it out, uh, rolling it out as a for-profit entity under the other LLCs associated with this group. It is not totally transparent in the things that I've read so far where the original donors to OpenAI's uh, open research are getting. And so like that, uh, that, that, that's a question that's currently being teased out. I got a little frustrated because essentially you're suddenly saying like, oh, no, no, we're going to keep AI safe and we're going to make it a nonprofit and protect it under a foundation, under a, you know, a banner of, of doing good for the public good to now Microsoft is literally rolling it out as a Bing, using it however they will for, you know, their own shareholder value. That's what we're talking about. And as a company owns it, it's to promote shareholder value, not public interest. Yet in the beginning, did they get tax deductions for that? Do they have percent ownership payouts? That's the story that we're going to see involved. I am watching it like a hawk. Um, I'm like tempted to write it. I don't have the time to do the like type of depth of research, but I think some other people smell what's going on, which is the fact that can you just use a 501c not-for-profit to get a tax deduction on failed investments or investment capital? I'm going to start a nonprofit and it's going to do um, cold fusion. It's a risky endeavor, but you get a tax deduction because uh, energy for the people is something positive. But by the way, if it goes public and it starts to work, if it if it starts to work and we gain traction, I have this LLC. I'm just going to give you some sort of, you know, fairy godmother tax, you know, loophole BS percent share of that LLC, and you win. And if you lose, you got the tax deduction. Like that is a terrible use of of nonprofits in terms of what they should be. Uh, designed for, and I, I smell it. I smell the loophole potential here. So questions, right? Questions. So good job, TechCrunch. More hopefully to come on that. Ooh. This is quite a boon for uh, tech journalism these past couple months, huh? Open <laughs> AI, AI, yeah. Twitter. Man. All right. No, definitely an intriguing one. Something we'll keep an eye on. George, I think we. I think it's coming time that we just got to do we got to do an AI episode. The good, the bad, the innovative, the nonprofits, the future, the search, the SEO. There's so many angles to that. And I think our listeners yeah. would be intrigued. Well, we do have a AI course that we did back in October that just walks you through AI prompts, the use cases, and we have a lot more. Of course, we have a custom AI writing tool that can be purpose-built for your organization. If you want to reach out to us on that, being like, hey, I hear all this stuff. My board members are talking about it. I feel like ChatGPT is the Wild West, how do we get one of these things built on top of our data? That's what we're building for our clients. Uh, it's disturbingly good, I will say, right? Ironically, mm. after that previous rant, uh, I'm very much pro large language models, and their applications for social impact. Uh, but like many tools, they can be used and misused. And so we are racing to pull as many nonprofits up this learning curve so they can leverage it for the outcomes that actually make the world less shitty. Yeah, George, I'm with you. Uh, yeah, we want the good guys to to be using the tech. So that's where we're, we're looking here at Whole Whale. But uh, how about a feel-good story, George? 
What do we got? All right. Uh, so this is about the nonprofit, uh, formerly known as Together We Rise. They help uh, children um, within the foster care system has rebranded uh, to Foster Love, and you can find them on Foster Love, F-O-S-T-E-R-L-O-V-E dot com. Foster We Love works with hundreds of foster agencies, social workers, uh, CASA advocates, and other partners to bring programs to foster, foster youth, youth across the nation and has provided thousands of youth with new bicycles, college supplies, um, backpacks, and uh, all the all the good stuff that you need to have as close to a normal childhood as you can for kids in um, extraordinary circumstances. So uh, awesome organization. And yeah, check out the new website. Yeah, again, Together We Rise, becoming fosterlove.com. And the organization started in 2008, 2008 by uh, Danny Mendoza, after he discovered that his nine-year-old cousin was living in a car, he ran into obstacles uh, because he was uh, underage to support uh, and adopt. Their whole reason for being is to make that process easier of connecting uh, more children in the foster care system with loving families. And there's a lot of work in and around that. You do not have to just necessarily adopt, uh, but there are many ways, as you mentioned, they have... Uh, for sending packages to children uh, currently in foster care. So great organization. Also, full disclosure, they are a returning client of Whole Whales over the years. We are, we are friends and are friendly and are fans of their work at Foster Love. All right, Nick. Oh, I feel like I've got a question for you. I feel like a oh, question. No. Do I? You do, because... Did you hear about the fraud allegations uh, about the nonprofit butter recycling program? Nonprofit butter recycling? Well, honestly, Nick, I I, I don't want to spread it. Get oh it? Did you God. spread butter? You'd spread butter. Uh -huh. And I uh -huh. don't want to spread those types of things. All right, Nick. That's what people get for making it to the end. See you next time. See ya. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 